You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. To learn more about the land you are on, visit native-land.ca. Welcome to Women's Health Interrupted, a women's health research cluster podcast. I'm Rebecca Barron. And I'm Sydney Clips. Through scientific inquiry and storytelling, this podcast brings you content about women's health from many angles. In her role with the BCCSU, Dr. Boyd collaborates with local and national peer-based drug user-led groups, as well as leads a program of qualitative and community-based research activities investigating drivers of drug-related harms among women, including barriers to harm reduction and the criminalization of women who use drugs. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Boyd, for being with us here today on this week's episode of the Gendered Impacts of Drug Policy on Women. So my first question for you is that research has shown that women use drugs differently, they respond to drugs differently, and can have unique obstacles to effective treatment. So in your opinion, in what ways can we highlight the unique needs of women in our policy and decision-making processes? It's a good question, and it's a big one, so bear with me. Just in general, across the board, I would say women and gender diverse people are discriminated against in Canada. They make less money. They're more likely to live in poverty, to be victims of male violence, do more caretaking and housework than men. And these inequalities are heightened for racialized women, particularly Indigenous women, who experience poor health, such as higher rates of HIV and risk of overdose, than other populations of women. Because colonial practices have led to unequal access and support from health and social services for Indigenous populations. So women and gender diverse people who use drugs are more often second on the needle than men, which can lead to higher risk of HIV and hepatitis C transmission. They're more likely to hide their substance use for a variety of reasons. Uh, fear of child apprehension being one of them. Regardless, it increases the risk of overdose if using alone, hiding your substance use. Uh, they have indicated a prevalence for smoking sometimes rather than injecting their drugs in some populations, but we know that few overdose prevention sites in Canada, for example, currently allow for smoking, although more are going this way. There is a gap in services for smoking drugs. They're more likely to require assistance injecting, which can increase the risk of violence and overdose if in um, requiring assistance in unsafe situations, for example. They're more likely to be single parents than men, but there's not a lot of drug treatment services that allow you to bring your children and you certainly can't bring them to supervised consumption services. Racialized women, particularly Indigenous and Black women, are the fastest growing prison population, and not because they're more criminal, but because uh, for a range of reasons, one of them being over-policed. And they're disproportionately affected by social stigma. They experience more barriers to accessing services, 
uh, including experiences of racialized and gender-based violence, which can be a barrier to access. And this is particularly among sex workers and indigenous populations and, and poor populations. So all of these things together, I think indicate a need for targeted and adaptable interventions that should be community directed, um, informed by those most affected that are culturally appropriate and also responsive to historical and contemporary oppression. So what that means essentially is that we need services that are peer led led by people with lived and living experiences of substance use and uh, the intersection of different oppressions that people are dealing with. Uh, they need to be culturally safe and gender diverse, and that means that they meet the needs of all women. So when I use the term woman, I'm using it to include gender diverse, transgender and two-spirit people, of course, but I don't mean to homogenize their needs, which are varied. Services need to also step up for pregnant and parenting women, especially in relation to the overrepresentation of child apprehensions of Indigenous, Black, and poor women in Canada. For example, there's been some excellent recent research that's demonstrated that women whose children have been apprehended by the state are more likely to experience accidental overdose, particularly among Indigenous women. And it's not really surprising because apprehension has a lifelong impact on the parent, the child, and their family. So we need to take all of these things into account and highlight them when we're addressing our policy and decision-making processes. I think that somewhat covers <laughs> that question in a, in a long, um, detailed answer. Indeed, thank you. That was a wonderful overview. Um, from in, in terms of our research perspective, from your own work and experience with the BC Centre on Substance Use, how do we start to incorporate more qualitative, more ethnographic, and community-based methods into drug research? Yeah, and that's the kind of research I do. I only do qualitative, ethnographic, and community-based uh, methodologies in my research, and. There's a few reasons that I do this. Quantitative research is important, incredibly important, because we wanna know, for example, how many people have died from an overdose? How are women particularly impacted in comparison to men? How many women have drug offenses? We need those numbers, but it's only through qualitative research that we can find out the why. What are the nuances? What is the context and the subtleties of what the daily life and experiences are of women who use drugs? And Really, only they can tell us how our policies impact them and how we might move forward to create better drug policies. So if you do community-based research, then you can work with the communities to see what questions are important to them. They can be engaged in all aspects of the development of the research questions so that they're relevant uh, to the way that you're asking those questions. They can participate in how in as research researchers on your team to make sure that you're doing ethical and effective research when you're doing qualitative research. And then you can make sure that it's responsive to the community uh, the, around the issues that you're hoping to address. Because I mean, why else are we doing this research if it doesn't, if we don't share that those findings with the, the people whose lives we're trying to make better and with the people who can make the most impact um, you know, policymakers, for example, to make those changes. So I think qualitative research lends itself to those things as well. When you're doing ethnographic research, you can actually physically be 
uh, physically see things for yourself, which I think is always really useful. For example, if you're looking at experiences around services, if you actually go to the services, you know, you're in the place yourself, you can see firsthand some things that um, people may not feel comfortable talking about. And then you might be able to ask those questions more directly once you've experienced it firsthand. Certainly. And thank you for highlighting both the value and the challenges of that. Now, I mentioned it's, it's important to partner with communities, but I, I also want to caution that that's difficult. It's been difficult during COVID, but in general, communities are dealing with their own issues of burnout, fatigue, grief. If they're dealing with things like poverty and criminalization, uh, the burden has been put on them. Uh, through lack of policy action to, to make changes. So um, it's a negotiation where you want to uh, be able to support and enable their participation as well in your research process. So all of that is part of what I think is community engaged research and it takes longer to do than non-engaged research. So um, how we enable that I think there's a lot of different ways to do that, but one is thinking that it's important to highlight the voices of um, those populations that um, feature in your research questions, right? Uh, so one way is recognizing that that is an important form of, of evidence base. And so having that recognition and then doing the, the extra work, even though it takes longer to um, make sure that it's more community oriented. Absolutely. And I think that also building trust with communities, that is such an important dimension and needs to be recognized more in research. So another question that we had kind of tangentially to that was um, looking at an intersectional framework. So we know that intersectionality really looks at addressing um, addiction stigma um, through other forms of bias, how like racism and sexism might intersect um, within that. So in this regard, how has intersectionality been incorporated into our current drug policies and harm reduction strategies? Has an intersectionality framework been incorporated into current policy? I, I would say not as far as I'm aware, not formally, though, as you mentioned, there's some excellent research that does in, incorporate that framework and, and points to the need for it. And yes, there's some excellent harm reduction services that are informed by intersectional frameworks. And I can just think locally, for example, Sister Space, which is a women and gender diverse overdose prevention site, or FirstSquare, which is a harm reduction program for pregnant women and mothers. Um, that's an apprehension-free site. So yes, there, there's different services, but officially there are platitudes about how addiction affects all people. But in fact, the consequences of our drug laws, policies, and stigma are not equal. Poor people, Black, Indigenous, and racialized people, as well as gender diverse people are more discriminated against, profiled by the police, have less access to legal defenses, less choice in addiction treatment, if that's what they're interested in, and are overrepresented in prison. And as I said, not because they're more criminal, but because they're more visible on the street and more profiled. So um, I, this and all of the reasons that I previously stated in the question beforehand, 
uh, I think are an answer to that specific question. I agree. I think we need to consider more of an intersectional lens, but applying that to current, like it hasn't been applied yet appropriately, I think, to current drug policies and harm reduction strategies. So maybe just disseminating that information and ensuring that the wider public knows that it is a framework that should be used. Yeah, I think that there has been a lot of excellent research, but incorporating into incorporating it into policy takes a lot longer and and also having people with lived experience having their voices be heard in in policy decisions will, will help push that forward. And on that note, um, historically, I think a lot of barriers to awareness has been this historical tendency towards otherness still. This perception of women who use drugs um, and the way that they're portrayed. Um, are there ways outside of policy and research, in your opinion, that we can help shift this forward um, and away from this narrative, perhaps culturally as well? Yeah, that's a good question. There is a different standard for women who use drugs compared to men. They're seen as doubly deviant because they break our ideas about gender norms or they fall outside of them. And the illegal drug user for over a century has been framed as criminal and pathological. And women and gender diverse people are pathologized even more so, especially if poor or racialized. And part of that is that women have been stereotyped as moral, good, self-sacrificing caretakers and are, are often punished for transgressing transgressing those social constructs. Most of the drug services we've created are gender neutral, but are essentially geared towards cis men as the dominant norm. Of course, there's exceptions like the Dr. Peter Center in Vancouver is an exception, but in order to shift away from that narrative, we need to ensure equitable access for all populations um, to services, and we need to consult with them rather than just assuming that we know what they need. So whether they be urban indigenous or on reserve, women who are parenting, sex workers, youth, they know best from their own lived experiences where services have failed them and what they might need. So some recent research, as I mentioned, has been filling those gaps, but certainly we need more and we need to see it implemented, not just reported on. So ultimately we need a fundamental shift in our thinking about drugs and drug laws to understand that most harms that we associate with drug use come from punitive drug laws and policies rather than the drug itself that causes harm. But so the social and legal context of that drug use. I think that's one way to move away from this otherness. Absolutely. Um, and I would love to learn a little bit more about some of the research that you have done. So there was one article that I was reading called Women's Utilization of Housing-Based Overdose Prevention Sites in Vancouver, Canada. Um, I was wondering if you can speak a bit more to the work that you did um, with that and what were the results of this study? Uh, I've written so many papers that... <laughs> put on the spot about um, one particular study is difficult for me without prepping. It was about, um, so it said 88% of fatal overdoses occur in the home. And I thought that that was really, um, really eye-opening because women 
were facing a lot more violence when it came to actually accessing these overdose prevention sites. So I was wondering if you can speak a little bit more to that and how we can maybe improve women's safety when it comes to using drugs and what maybe that framework might look like. Yeah, so I can speak more generally, not not specifically to the article, I'm sorry, just because I've arranged, but yes, that's true. The majority of overdoses in Canada are happening in the home. And as I mentioned, women are more likely to hide their substance use for a variety of reasons. Women are more likely to experience a gendered and racialized based violence, and that can be intimate partner violence. And so they do experience a variety of barriers to accessing harm reduction services like overdose prevention sites. Having those sites uh, in some, we've now moved in, in Canada to have some supervised consumption sites within housing buildings, but that again only addresses substance use for um, poor and marginalized women, for example, who are living in those buildings. But uh, women do experience precarious housing and uh, face evictions, uh, especially when reporting intimate partner violence, for example. So that can put them at increased uh, precariousness of housing if they if they do so. So being able to find a safe way for women to be able to consume drugs without the risk of overdose has become quite complicated because of a range of, of those dynamics. So not only experiencing intimate-based partner violence if trying to access, um, say, over overdose prevention sites outside of the home, but sometimes experiencing it within um, services like overdose prevention sites, it may not be your partner, but you can experience any kind of violence if you're being stalked by someone that can follow you into that site as well. So it's not always experienced as a safe place. Um, some women then prefer not to then access those services and continue to use alone at home or um, they may not want to use if they have clients, um, if they're working as sex workers because they don't want to uh, you know, experience violence if, if their part, if their client may not want them to use substances, they're more likely to hide that use before and after in different ways uh, that can put them at risk of overdose. Um, so I guess if there's any other questions or things that you might want to cover that maybe we haven't touched on yet, um, I'll open up the floor to you uh, just to add in any final thoughts or words on the on this issue. Sure. Um, I've mentioned that we need adaptable services that are tailored to those communities uh, that, that need the services. But I, I wanna emphasize that we don't only need to address the outcomes of poor health, but we also need to address root causes, um, structural barriers that impact women. So poverty, criminalization, colonialism. So this means that we need services tailored to the communities and it's people with lived experience who are best positioned to give us those insights. They should really be, you know, helping direct those initiatives from the get-go all the way through to the development and, and service provision of those services. Uh, but um, in tandem with that, we need advocacy for policy change to, to address those larger structural issues that are, are affecting women. And also we need to give people choices. So what might work for some women doesn't work for all women. What might work for some people who use substance use 
uh, who use substances doesn't work for everyone. So we need a range. We need overdose prevention sites. We need naloxone training. We need people to have access to heroin-assisted uh, injection if that's what works best for them so that they're able to maintain their everyday lives, go home and connect, reconnect with their uh, communities and not have to go in every hour in order to um, have access to opioid ag agonist treatment, for example. So, um, you know, maybe some people still want recovery systems and we need to have those available too. So what we need is a wide range of services so that uh, it's equitable for everyone. So everyone can benefit um, from the policies that we're creating. Dr. Boyd, we want to thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with us and for the nuance and the dimensions with which you've covered this issue. Thank you for all of the work and research that you're doing on the topic. Thank you. I so appreciate being able to, to speak about a um, subject that I feel so passionate about. So thank you again. got a few new synapses firing for you. Be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts to hear our episodes when they drop every second Wednesday each month. Get in touch with us. We welcome any questions and constructive feedback. You can email us at womenshealth.interrupted at ubc.ca or find us on Twitter at research on WH or on Instagram at WHRcluster. To learn more about this topic, check out our show notes at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. We would like to thank the Michael Smith Foundation, BioTalent Canada, Patreon, and the UBC Global Lounge for their generous support of this project. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network and its wonderful staff for hosting our podcast. And a special thank you to Catherine Moore, who manages the Women's Health Research Cluster for all of her work in the development of this initiative. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day or evening wherever you are, and please take care of yourselves. Wishing you good health. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 